I saw that kind of one of the arenas for change in our society is the political arena. It's one place where people can come together and out of nothing, you're creating something to build a society. Have people abused it? Of course. Do we have the society that we need or deserve? No, not yet. But I do think that there have been points in our history where we have moved the needle forward, where we have made material changes for people that have actually benefited their lives. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, The Highs, The Lows, and The Lessons Learned. And I am so excited to tell you about this next guest, Esther Aglaje. Esther is an attorney and public policy professional with an inspiring career in public service. She serves as the state representative in the Minnesota legislature, and there she advocates for people-centered policies like safe and stable housing, reliable transit, and creating opportunities for young people in her community and throughout the state. She is also a staff attorney with the Public Health Law Center at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. She provides legal technical assistance on commercial tobacco control issues. And before this, she practiced medical malpractice and general civil litigation. Esther is a former foreign affairs officer with the U.S. Department of State. And in that role, she managed rule of law projects in the Middle East, focusing on Egypt and the Gulf states. Yeah, very cool. In law school, she spent two years as a student attorney with the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau defending tenants from eviction. And this sparked her passion for housing justice after seeing how many of her clients lived in unsafe and unhealthy buildings, paying rents they couldn't barely afford. And she continues supporting tenants by volunteering with the Volunteer Lawyers Network Housing Court Project. And I have to say that this conversation was really reassuring for me when it comes to politics in America. So I'm not sure if you guys know, but I was a political science major in college, and I was so excited about changing the world through advocacy and policies, yet over time I became disillusioned with politics. So many things I fought for didn't come to fruition, like the DREAM Act, bipartisan legislation introduced in 2001 providing a pathway to citizenship to immigrants brought to the U.S. at a young age. And it's 2022. We're still waiting on Congress. Thank you, Obama for DACA. But I couldn't believe the number of scandals involving politicians. I didn't like the polarizing rhetoric that often divides Americans into two camps. So I checked out. I disengaged and I just prayed and lived my life. (laughs) I still voted, but that's about it. And now that I'm older, and a bit wiser, I realize that this is not the best approach to politics. Just because a system is imperfect and people are imperfect, it does not mean we should disengage. Instead, we should probably engage and try to make things better. Esther is one of those people working to do just that. We talk a bit about how I thought Esther was too nice for politics, and I was surprised with her decision to run for office. When I say too nice, I mean not cutthroat enough or self-interested. And then I thought to myself, this is a negative presumption. What I realized is that politicians are human. I'm sure they're complicated and imperfect. And while there are certainly some bad apples out there, I do think that there are a lot of people in office who genuinely care. And Esther is one of those people and she's given me hope again. And my hope is that her journey inspires you. So let's take a listen. I am here with Esther Aguaje. 
She is such a wonderful human being. Esther and I actually went to law school together and we would run into each other in the housing clinic and she was always fighting people. I'm not fighting people. Sorry. <laughs> she was. She was always fighting eviction and helping people. (laughs) We're going to edit that part out. Um, You should keep it. Tell your editors to keep it. It's hilarious. I did fight some people. (laughs) All right, we're keeping it. As you can see, Esther has a great sense of humor too, but she has such a heart for the community and she's doing that work now as a member of the House of Representatives for Minnesota And I am just so excited to have her here. So thank you, Esther, for joining us, joining me. Thank you, (laughs) Ashley. This is great. I would love to just start from the beginning. I'd love to just hear about your childhood, about your passions growing up. You know, why is Esther the way she is today because of her upbringing? That is something I'd love to know. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good question. I don't think about that that much. I think some of the things that are just staples that it's just kind of the way it is, but when you put it in context, has a much more of an effect. So first off, I do come from a family of immigrants. My parents both immigrated from Nigeria to Minnesota in the 1980s. They met in Minnesota. They had me and my two younger brothers and, you know, we lived in St. Paul. And so that part of Minnesota, luckily we lived in a building that also had other immigrants too. They were friends with a lot of Nigerians and other Africans. And so we got to like get to know those people's kids. And so we had opportunities to see other people that look like us in a state where that sometimes doesn't always happen. And in fact, actually, we, we experienced that later when through my dad's job, he then went on to become a priest in the Episcopal Church. We moved to Northern Virginia, back to central Minnesota. We were the only Black family there for the first 18 months. And also during that time period, we also experienced a hate crime at our church where someone, I think it was like a teenager or something, but they had broken into the church. They burned one of the Bibles. And when the police finally caught them, part of their reasoning was because there was a Black priest at that church. So those are the kind of things that sort of like shape you about the world that you're living in especially as you're a young person. So like, you know, you're growing up as like a kid, you get to move around a little bit, you start to have friends in different parts of the world, and you think everything's good. And then, you know, at 10 years old, there's this like awakening, not everyone is happy that you exist. (laughs) So I think that's part of our upbringing, right, of just what does it mean to be in this world? And like, how can you help make a difference to try to make things better? Both of my parents worked in industries where that was the work that they did as a priest. My dad is a spiritual advisor to a lot of people, a place where people can kind of come and seek knowledge about their relationship and their faith. My mom is a librarian. That's always a place where people are coming to learn, whether it's like books that can help expand their horizon, learning how to use the computer, learning how to apply for jobs, all of those types of things. So I just always saw them in roles of helping other people and telling their stories. And so me and my two younger brothers, we're all very close in age. I think we stuck together very much because we did have to move around a lot. So we went from Minnesota to Virginia, back to Minnesota, Chicago, back to Virginia, a different part of Virginia. So we were always each other's first friends, even though we had other friends too. So that's one thing I'll always be grateful for my brothers and my family that we're a very tight-knit group to be able to face anything that comes to us. 
So some of the things that I really enjoyed when I was a kid that kind of stuck with me at varying levels. Can I stop you just really quickly? Yeah. I want to hear that. But I didn't know that about your parents. And it just makes so much sense. Because when we were in law school, you were someone I felt like so many people just trusted you and came to you for advice. And you're just this calming spirit. And you were always willing to help. And so the fact that those were the roles that your parents had, I can just see that reflected in you. So that is amazing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, my brothers talk about it from a perspective of that helped them tell better stories. They're both in the entertainment industry, but I guess it rubbed off on me, like you said, and it's true. I mean, one thing my mom says a lot, she says sometimes just most random people will come up to her and start telling her their life stories. (laughs) And I feel like that's happened to me a couple of times too. And I'm sitting there like, why do you think I need to know this information? (laughs) That's so funny. My mom was the same way and she never met a stranger. It's a wonderful quality to have. Yeah. So I think that comes with a lot of responsibility, which I'm sure we'll get into, but I don't take that lightly. I think it's a good thing that people feel comfortable with you to be able to tell their experiences, share problems that they might have, or come to you seeking some type of comfort or guidance. So yeah, I think that's really important. And I'm glad to be that person to people when they need it. So yeah. So I think moving on kind of things I was really interested in that I think have sort of stayed with me and also continue to shape me is, so I always really enjoyed writing when I was a kid. I don't really know when I started, but like there were various like points I remember, like I vividly remember writing letters to the White House when we lived in Northern Virginia. I don't know what they were about, but they were probably about how the government needs to be better. (laughs) Who thinks of that? Who thinks to write to the White House at that age? At seven years old? I don't know. I mean, like, I think that's like a burgeoning political instinct, but like, and it wasn't a class assignment. Like, I do remember like going to my mom being like, I want to write this letter to the White House. Maybe she knows what the concepts were, but like, then, you know, after that break in at the church in Brainerd, Minnesota, I also wrote a letter to the editor that got published about just like how really sad it was to have that happen in our church and how really sad it was that that person was motivated by hate. So that was published and I recently came across, or not recently, but like two years ago, I came across it and I was like, how does one write that at 10 years old? So like, so that was really interesting. And at that time, I always was involved in kind of like what was happening at school. So I started our like school newspaper in fifth grade, also at 10 years old. And when I got to high school, I wrote for the school paper all four years I was there. I was, I think I was the senior editor in my senior year. And in college, I wrote a little bit too. But for some reason, I think as you kind of grow up, there are points where people want to put you down. And I try to move past them a lot. But one point that kind of sticks out to me is when I was in college, I was studying political science, but I also was trying to get a minor in journalism because I really liked the idea of writing and telling stories and putting information out there. And I had a professor in one of my journalism courses And one of his critiques of my writing was that I had no voice. And so that like really stuck with me. It's actually something I still struggle with today, but it's hard to know like what that does to someone who thinks that they've been able to write and not trying to say like, oh, like I was a perfect writer. No one is, but just like, it wasn't a constructive comment, right? It wasn't a comment to say like, here's how you like build into your voice or grow into your voice or hear better ways to express yourselves. It was just like, in this piece, you have no voice. 
like, and there wasn't even like a prompting question of like, what are you trying to say or something like that? It was just like, so I think jarring. It is. It's very jarring. And I think it kind of shut me down in terms of wanting to write for a public setting anymore. So I wrote my papers and I wrote for work. But one of the things that I always keep struggling with is like, what is the best way to write for like a wider audience? And so I think that's why when you start working, I have had roles with the government. I've had roles as an attorney. And those are all spaces where you have to write a lot. But in those spaces, they also have very formulaic writing, which I think maybe a lot of writers of color might understand that sometimes that formulaic writing doesn't necessarily work with the way we express ourselves. And so... (laughs) I've had many conversations about this, yes. (laughs) Right? So I think that that is something that... And I see a lot of writers of color now starting to express this more often in like social media or in their writings about how they're not going to be bound so much by the quote unquote rules, right? Like, you know, obviously you want to be clear and you want to make sure you're expressing your thought. And, and I'm not saying that, but I think we all know that there's various cultural ways of expression. And I think sometimes that gets diluted in certain professions in our society. And so I think from that professor telling me that I didn't have a voice to like now figuring out, I got to get past that. And I'm coming into my voice now and starting to come around to what would writing look like for me now, especially because of my new position where it's really important to me to communicate with my constituents and with my district about Not only like, here's what I'm doing per se, but like, why is this happening? The thinking behind my decisions that I'm making, the inner workings of what's happening in Minnesota. And that's something that I want to begin to express. And so I think one of the things that I try to do now is like get past that initial block to be able to like effectively communicate with my community. So yeah, so, so that's something that. that... Yeah, I love that. And it sounds like you're adding in more transparency than I think is often prevalent in politics. Like what you just described yeah. sounds like a more transparent approach to your constituents. And that's part of your voice, which I think is amazing. And it's really what we need. And something else about you, Esther, that I love is that when we were in law school, you had this quiet confidence. That's how I would describe it, where... I had no idea that you would become a politician. I just did not know that, which is amazing. You're just so kind. And (laughs) like, so it was just such a shock. And it's just so great that we have people like you in politics because laws matter, policies matter. They affect everyday life. And so I'm glad that you're doing this work and you don't fit a specific stereotype that I think is often associated with politicians. I'm not sure if you've ever gotten that before, but... Yeah, a lot. <laughs> or maybe not, I shouldn't say a lot. That's not. But that reminds me, it's weird being in this space because there are so many people that are really in it for their own personal gain. They're in it to climb a ladder and they're very ruthless about it. And the other thing they're transparent about is the transactional quality of their actions. A lot of people always ask me like, well, why are you so interested in politics? And for some reason... And I don't have a point to say, like, I started thinking this way or like this happened and I saw that. But like maybe through my education, 
I saw that kind of one of the arenas for change in our society is the political arena. It's one place where people can come together and out of nothing, you're creating something to build a society. Have people abused it? Of course. Do we have the society that we need or deserve? No, not yet. But I do think that there have been points in our history where we have moved the needle forward, where we have made material changes for people that have actually benefited their lives. And that has been in part because of people who are in our political process. And so I think that's always just appealed to me. And that's why I've always wanted to be in politics, because I do see it as a space where you can help people. So that's why I want to get involved. But the thing about it is, as you said, I am a very like kind, nice, try to be as generous as I can person. I don't necessarily want to be in these political games. Because I actually don't see politics as a game. I see it as a way of living our life. And so I remember taking this class at the Kennedy School because we were able to take classes across the different schools. And it was a simulation of essentially a Congress. And I was a member of the simulation. And, you know, I had to put bills forward and all those types of things. And but as part of that, it's like there were so many students who use that as like this wave, like gain power in that system that wasn't real. And I remember one of our reflection papers, I wrote like one of the things I do really want to be in this space. I do think it's an effective place for change, but I'm worried that my personality doesn't fit, that I'm too nice for politics. And one of the supporting professors had worked uh, in DC, I think most of her professional career had worked in the White House, had worked at different offices. And she was like, no, we need nice people in Washington. Yeah. <laughs> so that stuck with me. And so I think when I then moved back to my home state after law school and an opportunity arose to run, I remembered that, that there is a role for people like me who, like you said, have that quiet confidence, are putting people first and are wanting to make sure that our political system represents those needs. And that's what I try to do. I love that. And so a follow up on that is, how is it? How is it being in politics now that you've transitioned into this role? And what kind of work are you doing? It is. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'll go ahead and say this on record, because I've pretty much said it to everyone who's ever asked me. It is a fascinating and terrifying place. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) No, interesting enough, I have actually really enjoyed it. The legislative branch has probably not been a branch of government I thought I would really end up in, but it has been a really good place to kind of throw out all these ideas and negotiate with your colleagues about what's going to move forward. And I've had those opportunities so far in my first year. One of the areas I primarily work in is housing. From our time at Harvard, I was at the Legal Aid Bureau. I worked in the housing clinic there. That is definitely where I saw that our society is failing people that are answered to poverty a lot of times is to kick people out of a home. So which means then they have no stability whatsoever. They can't maintain a job. They can't make money. Their kids can't go to school. But yet that's our answer because you don't have enough money. So therefore you can't live. So that's something that I do focus a lot on tenants' rights. I know there's a space for home ownership and I'm all for home ownership, but we know that a lot of people rent. And in my district and in the city of Minneapolis where I live, it is a majority renter area. And so I've been working on a lot of bills and hopefully laws soon to kind of make sure that tenants have the same ability to hold their landlords accountable the way landlords can hold tenants accountable. 
the biggest thing I think in Minneapolis that we are most recently known for is the murder of George Floyd that happened in 2020. So, you know, we were kind of ground zero for the most recent racial reckoning that's happening in the United States. Me and my colleagues have been working even before I got into office. Many colleagues were working to make sure that we were putting forward bills and laws that would begin to start to hold police accountable for their actions. We're still pushing on that. It's still very much an uphill battle. And I think that that's an area that will always continue to need work and always continue to push forward for what people want. And then finally, one of the other areas I'm really passionate about is making sure that our young people have safe places to go. The pandemic, I think, has really disrupted what that looks like for a lot of young people. I mean, I know that when I was growing up, I could count on my family or I could count on my school or a bunch of like after school activities that we did. I mean, my parents used to put us in like these after school, like summer day camps, right? When they were at work. I don't know how many of that is necessarily accessible to a lot of kids in my district. And so wanting to make sure that those opportunities are still there, that they have safe places to be kids, places to make mistakes, and they have adults who can help guide them in their work. So that's the type of work that I've been focusing on in this first year type of work I want to continue doing. And I think, and I'm glad to lend my voice to other people who who are like-minded in that space. I love that. That's amazing. And it's certainly very different from what that professor had to say about not having a voice. Um, So (laughs) you are proving him wrong, sis. Uh, But but no, I mean, that is such incredible, important work that you're doing. I didn't even think about the connection to George Floyd and just that racial reckoning and being in the middle of that during a pandemic. So definitely a high pressure time, an important time. Outside looking in, to me, you are very successful. You are the definition of success as someone who from an early age, it just based on the things that you've told me thus far, really had politics in your blood. And this was the kind of work that you were going to do. And now you're doing it. And so I guess from your perspective, I wanted to know How do you define success? What does it look like to you? And has it changed over the years? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think every few years, you kind of have to reassess your life and kind of what you want out of it and what you want to do next. There was a time period when I was supposed to go into the Foreign Service. And I did still end up working for the State Department. But there were some issues that came up just in how the Foreign Service accepts people and the kind of criteria they need for them. And so that was kind of a setback that I hadn't really expected, especially because I I fought it. I fought to say that I can still be in the Foreign Service despite your antiquated (laughs) regulations or whatever. And it still didn't happen. I think that's always something I think about of like, okay, well, if you're not able to do something, then what is another way that you can still get it? So that was part of why I ended up, anyone who knows the State Department and the kind of the hierarchy there, I ended up in the civil service, which... Civil service personnel are amazing because they're the ones who are actually there for a really long time. They gain a lot of expertise in their area. And so I'm really proud that I was a civil servant for about five years there. But it was something that made me think about, okay, how do I want to do my life? At that point, international travel and international experiences were really important to me. And I figured out ways to still get those experiences. So I was able, my country portfolios were across Middle East and North Africa. I was able to travel to pretty much all of my countries during the time I was there. And I spent about three months, a month and a half, sorry, (laughs) I spent three months somewhere else, but I had spent three months in Oman 
And then I spent a month and a half in Tunisia. So I was still able to kind of get a little bit of that experience without necessarily having to be in the farm service. So that's like a form of success, right? It's kind of, you take a step back and kind of figure out, well, how can I still get out of it what I want? I think then that also motivated me to be able to pivot careers a little bit. If it wasn't going to necessarily be in international work, was there still something in law and policy and politics that I could do in the United States? And so I think that was a big impetus for going to law school. Not only had I been working on my projects with lawyers and wanting to get to understand that more, but it also just provided another point to be able to be, how can I still use my skills to advance people's interests? And then from that, I ended up working as a lawyer. I got to work on some really cool cases, especially one that provided medication to prisoners who had hepatitis C. So I was like, okay, the law is still able to do, to materially benefit people's lives the way I wanted to. So I don't have a definition of success, but I do think part of it is like kind of figuring out how you can still get the experiences and be able to be okay within yourself of the type of life that you're living and that not everything is about chasing the shiny objects. And so I think I've learned a long time ago to stop chasing shiny objects for the sake of shiny objects. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Gold stars. I don't know if it was a long time ago for me. It was maybe like five years ago, four or five years ago. So um, That's a long time ago. I think that's my time frame too. (laughs) Basically after law school. (laughs) Yeah. Because we're trained a certain way, right? In in law school, it's just so hierarchical. It's all about getting these kinds of grades and going to this particular school and going to this particular firm. And it's all about these external factors. And we all start to define ourselves by these things. And it's so wonderful when we're able to release ourselves from that and really follow, like you just said, just like being okay with what you're doing in this world. Might be misquoting you. So, but something like that. No, no, I mean, that's, that's right. Like, and you have to think about it all the time because the shiny objects don't do anything for you. I'm sure a lot of people listening to us will be like, y'all have a ton of shiny objects. Why are you still chasing them? (laughs) But like, you know who said it best? I don't know if you ever had class with him, but Professor John Hansen, he was telling us in our first year section, now you can get off the treadmill now. And what he meant by that was that you no longer had to keep running to try to prove something to someone or to try to get this or get that. And I think what he was trying to tell us, which I don't think many of us understood in that class, was that you don't have to go after all these things just because everyone says you should. I mean, that's part of the reason I didn't write for law review because I was like, I don't need that. (laughs) I did not want that life. And then I watched my husband go through it. I was like, oh, it's a little different for me. But you did. You followed your heart with doing H Lab and yeah. Harvard Legal Aid Bureau. Is that correct? Yeah. I yeah, use Harvard all these is- acronyms and then people won't know what we're talking about. Yeah. And I was debating between that organization and becoming a BSA Board of Student Advisors. Yes, 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 yes. But never thought about law review because I was like, what makes sense? And so for me, I did the housing clinic because I really wanted to do that work and give back to the community. But simultaneously, I love being a peer advisor at Stanford. I loved working with students and being a BSA was like the best thing. It was aligned with my purpose and my personality. And so perhaps we weren't completely 
going for the gold stars. Like we were starting to see the light in law school. Great advice. Yeah. And it definitely is hard to do. I struggle with it all the time of trying to figure out as I'm building out a new career, what does success look like to me? And for right now, a lot of my metrics are just kind of, is the work that I'm doing and the bills that I'm advancing, is that going to create a positive benefit for my community? Oh, I love that. You're inspiring me. I feel like I need to do some deep thinking again through my... (laughs) Every couple of years, <laughs> what do I want to put into this world? Which I guess starting with this podcast is something I certainly wanted to do. So I am happy with that and happy that you're here. Another thing that I wanted to get your perspective on is just what you might tell your younger self. Like if you could go back to her and even just any other young women who are looking up to you today because you have a platform, you are a black woman, politician, That is rare. That is incredible. That is amazing. So people are looking up to you. I think Michelle Obama said it best. I'm probably misquoting her, but I think she said, when you're in certain positions, like you are a role model. You can't say, I'm just living my life. And you might be just living your life, but people are looking to you. And and I thought that was was wonderful. I'm a stan, Michelle Obama stan. So (laughs) Me too. She's awesome. We love her. We love you, Michelle (laughs) Obama. We love you. Please come to Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take you around. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, what would you tell your younger self or tell younger women about life, career, You know, I think one thing that I continue to tell young women that I interact with is that they can do it. I think that's a message we don't get a lot, right? At a certain point, we start to get messages that tell us to dim our light, to make space for other people, make ourselves smaller. So what I try to do is I try to encourage the women I interact with is that, no, you can do it. If that's something you want to do, go ahead, find your friends to support you gravitate towards the teachers that support you, gravitate towards your community members that support you because your ideas matter, your interests matter, your goals matter. And so I think that's something that we have to continue to tell our young girls, particularly our young women of color, that there is a place in this world for them and that they have as much to contribute as anybody else. So that's what I try to leave them with because I also need to remind myself that too. <laughs> yes. No, I love that. And you're reminding me as well. The last thing would, for me would be if you had any final thoughts, no worries if you don't, but any final thoughts or anything that you did want to share? Because sometimes I don't always hit on certain parts of people's stories that might be interesting that they want to share with everyone. Otherwise, we can give that campaign plug and I'll have it on my <laughs> website as well. <laughs> True, true, true. Well, I'll do a little bit of both. Okay, so the only thing I didn't really talk about that much that I do do that sometimes people are surprised by is that I am an amateur musician. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I have played the flute off and on since I was in fourth grade. I most recently, which is not as recent anymore, but I did play with a community band here in Minneapolis. And I had played with a community band when I was in Arlington, Virginia. 
And it's just, for me, music is just another good space for me. It helps clear my head. It helps me think. And then just, it's also just really beautiful. So I am glad to be in those ranks. Adult musicians, it's never too late to go back and pick up your old instrument from high school or college. In most places, there's tons of groups that will take you. So so I'm always grateful to that and hoping that I can find time in my schedule. Hopefully, maybe we'll see what happens. Maybe this year I can try to pick it back up again, but... I don't know what you'll do with that, but yeah, that's... No, I love that because I do think a big part of success that I am starting to figure out is having hobbies, Mm -hmm. having something outside of the work that you do every day that just brings you joy. And I think that is a part of success, building in the things that bring you joy just Mm -hmm. because... Yeah, I love that. And that's, that's what you gotta do. Yeah, so if I can, because I, I think this will air still during the campaign season of 2022. So if you're in Minnesota or if you're anywhere in the United States, you can find me on social media at go for Esther, go number four, Esther, E S T H E R. There you can find out kind of what I've done in my first year in office as well into the second year and how you can also support the reelection campaign. So would love to have people support, have people share. And if you've got friends and family in Minnesota, please let them know. We'd love to also have their support there. And I think it's just a great thing to be able to have friends around the world who support your dreams and your efforts. So Ashley, I I have to say thank you again for being just a really good friend in this space and supporting this dream that I have to make life better for people. So I'll say that that's probably a good place to end on. Yeah, no, and you were... Obviously, so welcome. So happy that you were able to share your story here with us. And I am excited about your re-election. Everyone, go on the website. It'll be in my show notes. Esther is just such an amazing human being. She's doing amazing work, and she's going to continue to do that. And so I'm just grateful. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find No Straight Path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.